Welcome to the Sociology Annex. I'm Jean Beeman at University of California, Santa Barbara. I'm Netta Megbula at University of Toronto. And today we're joined by Patrick Ingalls at Grinnell College. Hi, Patrick. Hello, everybody. So I want to talk to you guys about a article that came out in the Chronicle Review a couple of days ago that's been widely shared by sociologists on social media. It's called The Comradely Professor, and it's a feature article about a political scientist named Jody Dean, who has a new book called Comrade, an essay on political belonging. And in it, one of her theses is about how academics need to pick a side when it comes to the class war. So I was wondering if this has come across your screens, uh, what you guys thought about this, uh, just because it's made a lot of waves. Does she talk specifically about the class war? Or is it, I mean, I, my, my sense in reading the articles, it was a little more, a little more vague. It's like, we need to oh, start- Oh, like, like, comrade based on what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. That's an important question. Like, mm -hmm. uh, like what are we, what are we comrades in favor of, mm -hmm. right? And I guess the other question I have is, you know, are we interested in doing this only only rhetorically and discursively? I mean, I mean, I, I grew up middle class. I consider myself middle class now. I think that, and I mean, there's a lot of precarity in higher ed, of course. What's the basis of of this allyship and comradeship? Is it is it one of class and, and class positionality, class location? Is it? I don't know. And I, the other thing that I I'd said. You know that we talked about earlier is is context. I think uh, I mean I lived in New York City for ten years. I grew up in Vancouver. I do research in Mexico City and Bangalore, and these are these are big diverse places. And certainly Iowa and Grinnell has more diversity than you would imagine, and more diversity than I. If it had diversity, it's more than I would imagine. Yeah. <laughs> No, I well, I but, it, but that also gets us to think about like what do we mean by diversity? Are we thinking are we thinking about the diversity simply on racial ethnic lines? I mean, you can be in a classroom in a sort of majority white space and still I think have a lot of diversity based on class, right? Class I think you can. And but I think that the article I think assumes an allyship around one sort of definition or understanding around diversity. Mm -hmm. And and that's something I think that we should puzzle out. You mean one definition of diversity or one definition of comrade? One definition of comrade based on what? Comrade in support of what? That is that for me is the question, right? I mean, there are multiple diversities. Mm -hmm. Right. I also think I, you know, I I appreciate someone say like, for example, Corey Robin, who's a political scientist mm -hmm. at Brooklyn College. And he's made this point multiple times online and off that he wants his students to understand that in the classroom, while there are activist elements to what he does and the readings that he selects for a syllabus, that he is not basing his evaluation or grading of, of their work and the assignments and the work that they do based on whether they agree with him politically. Mm -hmm. And I, th I think that that's the right move. Mm -hmm. So with this idea that we have to sort of, we individually have to pick which sides we're on, but not just, not just in the lives we live outside of the classroom or off campus, but within the campus and in the classroom, I think it's potentially problematic. And here's my point about, about the context is that that might play 
in certain university settings or college campuses in, say, New York City. And it's much more difficult to do in less diverse spaces and places like Grinnell. Right. I mean, yeah. So there's I mean, you can sort of make a statement like Corey Robin does or, or did about sort of, you know, I'm not grading you whether or not you agree with me. But I mean, you know, there's it's different from how the students might actually interpret that. Right. So like, mm-hmm. you know, I taught for five years in, in Indiana and yeah, um, right. and that was a very different context. So I would mm-hmm. I, I regularly taught lecture courses on race and ethnicity and I would not I would pretty much say the same thing of sort of like what I'm teaching you is based on empirical social science research about race mm-hmm. and ethnicity. You know, I'm not saying that all white people are racist, et cetera, et cetera. But that doesn't mean that students did it regularly in student evaluation say, you know, Professor Beeman was biased against me because I'm white or Professor Beeman is racist against me. You know what I mean? So it's like, yeah. I appreciate the sort of what, what statements we can put forth, but I also think it's important to keep in mind, like, who can actually do that work and who can actually like be appreciated or accepted by those statements can actually be accepted by students when they put them forth. And I, I don't I feel like as a black professor, I have that kind of freedom. Right. And so, so me as white male professor, middle-class, I can sort of project this objectivity in a way that is appreciated differently when I say it, given my positionality. Yeah. Versus versus you. Yeah. I, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's also sort of this interesting thing around, I mean, the way I read the article about being a comrade, I think it's also sort of maybe moving against this sort of false notion of objectivity and sort of, so, in, mm-hmm. so for example, like when I teach about racism, racism, it's not just sort of abstract concepts for me. I actually do really care. I mean, they're directly implicated in my life and the lives of people that I love and care about, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, I'm directly, I, I really care about eradicating these phenomena, right? So it's like, it's not... And yeah. that's why I kind of thought the comrade thing was like not just sort of treating, treating our subjects as detached from us, but actually something that we're very passionate about for very good reasons. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think sociology is, is necessarily a political science and project because we are, we're shining a light and illuminating structures and processes that produce and reproduce inequalities. Right. And so that's something that I say on day one of the class mm-hmm. is that if we look at this, at the subject matter in a particular light, right, the experience. Right. But I think right. It's, yeah. But I think it's helpful to keep in mind that, like, I agree with you, but I think it's helpful to keep in mind that there are many sociologists that don't think it's a political project, right? That even that debate yeah. itself is like, even that question itself is a debate. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like any episode of the annex that I've been on <laughs> comes back to like this fundamental question uh, about like who are we as sociologists and this is where we're doing our our soul searching I just want to point out that I feel like when when I've seen this article about the comradely professor posted which by the way like I haven't heard the word comrade being used in a while like I would have to say it was my PhD at Santa Barbara shout out to Howie Winant and like some of the other faculty who love to call us comrades (laughs) quite often in the grad program Um, and I felt like I had I had that language like kind of circulating a lot for me at least 10 years ago when I was in grad school and you know there's a whole other conversation about how I now am like in this different career stage in a different kind of institution and I'm I'm like really disassociated from this from this uh debate and this conversation currently and so I appreciated that this was taking me back to that um but you know the piece that 
it looked like people were pulling out from this article and sharing a lot was where the author is talking about the difference between allyship and comradeship. Um, I'll just read a little bit from the article. Uh, This is the author, Jody Dean, speaking. She says, I have a detailed critique of the figure of the ally and the politics of allyship. It's strange, isn't it, that a name, ally, associated with sovereign nation states pulling together to protect their own sovereignty, to secure their own borders, has become so ubiquitous in sectors that understand themselves as on the left. But the effort to secure borders is the clue to the limits of allyship. And she's saying that individuals imagine themselves like little sovereign states. They defend their territory and only join together under the Mm -hmm. most cautious and self-interested terms. And so when you think of ally in that sense, then doesn't it make Mm -hmm. much more sense to identify as a comrade and to what she says is to offer shared cover, right, under uh, conditions of extreme precarity. And I think it's really interesting that like among the sociologists I've seen who are posting this article, it's this paragraph that's that's really thinking deeper about the language of ally where we see that in other places and what that actually what that actually entails Mm -hmm. yeah no i like that that piece that part struck out to me as well because partly because i really hate the term ally so i'm always looking for different ways to sort of dismantle that particularly in academia so yeah no i totally i think the comrade notion was much more expansive in terms of the action that people can actually take if they are comrades versus what I've seen on college campuses where people say they're allies, but they don't, that doesn't really, that's not really attached to any actual action. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's something that, again, like it comes up on a what once annual basis when we look at something like how expensive the ASA meeting is, how right. for contingent or precarious faculty or faculty in a variety of different ranks and statuses, it's increasingly untenable to attend this meeting that is fundamentally, right, about networking and creating community and bringing people together. And so we, I think, um, have to really grapple with like, what are we willing to give up in order to to make those spaces more accessible? And at what cost? Who's going to bear that cost? Right, because if, if we're not addressing those questions, then, then then the term comrade becomes like the term ally. And it, it's, it's just a word that is not backed up by any activity. Right. Right. So I I think it does invite us to think about how we are incentivized within Mm -hmm. higher education not to be comrades. Mm -hmm. Right. Like what are the what are the existing structures, whether it's peer review or you know, hiring hiring like, you know, visiting assistant professors on half the salary of a tenured professor, et cetera. What do these structures entail? And what do they commit us to? And maybe we're not comfortable with those commitments. And right. so if I, I think this for me is what the article invites me at least to, to mm-hmm. think about, right? Yeah. Like what, what am I being asked to commit to? And what would academia and higher ed be like if I wasn't committing to these structures? Yeah. I just And, you know, moreover, like, what are you willing to give up in that sense? Right. Yeah. Right. You know, I do, I've, I've told my students this, that... You know, I think throughout history, history teaches us and shows us that when history changes or moves in certain directions, it's because of movements from below. And, you know, don't necessarily depend on middle or upper middle class, you know, professional people, whether they're your professors or anything else, to change the society. Because we're... I mean, we're incentivized and led to believe and and participate in the society in ways that actually can be fairly conservative. 
Yeah, I would make that point more strongly. I would say don't depend yeah. on that at all. I mean, I think, you know, in academia, you know, is a very conservative institution as an institution. Exactly. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I, th- yeah, I, I think I'm more interested in knowing what, how are the students themselves seeing each other as comrades mm-hmm. than, I mean, I, I, I think we've, we've got our own set of concerns as sociologists, mm-hmm. right? And as professors, mm-hmm. but we have a degree of, not all of us again, but a degree of security and stability that our students might not. And so when you're insecure and unstable, you see things that the people in power and are who are stable and secure don't see. Mm-hmm. And that's that's where change comes from, mm-hmm. is people who have a sort of shared interest in changing things. Yeah, I think one of the other things that I sort of thought was interesting about the article or what it kind of made me think about is sort of, you know, at what point, just as professors in the classroom, is it like, do we draw a line in the sand in terms of sort of, you know, I've, so I've been thinking about this in different ways. Like, what does it mean to be a professor in the Trump era or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Like, how do you... How do you draw a line in the sand to be like, yes, our president is a white nationalist and I'm teaching you about racism, et cetera. You know what I mean? Versus like, what are the stakes of, of doing that? Does that does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I don't know if either of you have thought about that at all. I have. I think for a moment, I mean, initially in the Trump presidency was to imagine that there was some great break in American history, right? And that we needed to puzzle this out. But that's an ahistorical, apolitical view. Right. That like, I mean, if you're white male middle class, as I am, it might appear to be a great historic break in American history or North American history. But I've I've learned a lot since that moment that life, you know, and and I knew it, too, even before. But I had to be reminded of it. Mm -hmm. Right. So teaching in the Trump presidency, is it so different Mm -hmm. than teaching with with the George W. Bush presidency, the Obama presidency, I mean, there are certain elements and trends that have been carried forward and didn't start under Trump. Of course, yeah, of course, right? But yeah, but like that. I guess I'm thinking about like so, like how does that influence like who we are in the classroom and what we say in the classroom? Hmm. I mean, it's it's yeah, it's kind of a perennial question for me. Following up on. Patrick's point, I think, um, yeah, you know, there are like certain discourses or techniques that feel like they're new. And again, like to go back to what what I think we might have to offer as sociologists is that we can kind of dig into the underlying process and to create some important connections there, particularly when we're doing it with an eye toward history too, um, to be able to say, right, perhaps it's unique that under the Trump administration, you know, people who are applying for a visa consent to have their social media profiles crawled through, right, by law enforcement, Mm -hmm. by the Department of Homeland Security. Um, But we've had different techniques, right, around surveillance for a really long time. Right. Their reach into pieces of our lives that we have sort of had this like weird ongoing new negotiation with like kind of online identity, social media, how much of ourselves we put out there. Um, That's all new, right? But these surveillance technologies have existed far before this. Um, That's just one example, right? But I'm thinking through it because it's on my mind with like my students, again, here in Canada, 
some of them have to apply for visas to like come to the U.S. for spring break or like whatever it is that they're doing, you know, and I had a student recently last week come up and say like, professor, is this normal that I had to give my Instagram handle and my like Facebook info to the U.S. government to look through? And I said, well, did you do it? And she said, yeah, I felt like I had to. But what do you think Mm -hmm. this means for me? And so, again, what does it mean to like as an educator meet our students where they're at with these kinds of decisions that they're having to face? And what would comradeship look like Right. in, in that instance? I think about those moments, those interactions where I feel like students are wanting you to be like, this is bullshit, blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? I think that's a moment where you can demonstrate that, but like, what does that actually look like? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, when I think about this question of comradeship, I, I feel like I need to be, for me, like really humble about what I project and put into the classroom because, you know... I have a mortgage. I have student debt. I'm worried about tenure. I mean, there's an element or degree of precarity in my life. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, what, and I don't want to over promise, Mm -hmm. right. And under deliver when it comes to the question of comradeship. And I think that I would appreciate if more academics were that honest about the question of comradeship, frankly. I know. You know, and I'm not letting myself off the hook as if I don't have to participate in any kind of struggle or activism or so on and so forth. But I think it's a matter of being honest about my own positionality mm-hmm. in that. And I, I think that oftentimes we get, we get headlong into these conversations about allyship versus comradeship, et cetera, et cetera. And I think we, we neglect to consider how we are in fact advantaged in ways that maybe our students are not. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think it's dishonest, for example, I mean, there, there have been professors recently who were advising their students not to pay student debt, mm-hmm. right? Non-student debt or pay student loans? Which one? Both. Okay. <laughs> like, just don't like, give up on debt. And, and these are people who, who are safe and secure, making six-figure salaries. And I, I certainly don't want to commit the same mistake. I think these are mistakes. Yeah. So, Look, that's how I felt about the student who asked me about this shit with like her visa. I was like, yeah, don't go to the United States. You right. want my real yeah, opinion? Okay. There's yeah. other places for vacation. Like, right. you know, um, so exactly. Yeah. I feel like maybe this is a conversation that's actually more interesting. In a bar over a drink. Yeah, or, exactly. Like or... not committed to, to audio tape because I feel really yeah. similar to you. Like We have a lot of skin in the game at this point. We've put like yes, decades. into this career path all of us are under tenure review right now it is a very weird moment to like try to stage a public conversation around this but it wasn't until we talked about it that i really felt that way yeah yeah in a a way they're like perfectly liminal subjects to have the conversation and yet i'm still like not ready (laughs) but i but i do think as as people who are on the verge of tenure that once we you know fingers crossed get tenure that we can commit to producing and you know different processes that are more just and equitable. Again, I I, I think I think the previous generation of non-tenured professors said the same thing though, and we're still in this moment of okay, we've got to change the academy. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Sociology Annex. This is Jean Beeman at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Annetta Mike from University of Toronto. And Patrick Ingalls from Grinnell College. Okay, bye everyone. 
Bye. Thank you. Bye.